0: Senator Hawley.
1: Mr. Chairman, thank you. I'd like to begin by asking consent to enter two letters into the record supporting the judge's nomination, the first from the Family Research Council and the second from a group of state attorneys general, including the state attorney general of my home state of Missouri. Without objection. Thank you very much. Uh, Judge, it's good to see you again. Uh, I've I've been so impressed uh, with uh, your answers today. Um, it, it's really quite extraordinary. I look forward to visiting with you a little bit here. Can we just start on the topic of independence, picking up where Senator Coons just was questioning you? I, I've heard my Democrat colleagues over and over again suggest that because, I guess, you clerked for Justice Scalia, that you'll automatically vote however he did. They attribute his opinions to you, his decisions to you, his method to you. To uh, Justice Scalia tell you what to do in your career? I mean, have you been in the habit your life of of doing exactly what Justice Scalia told you to do in your professional career?
0: Well, Senator Hawley, as I said earlier, if you confirm me you're getting Justice Barrett, not Justice Scalia, you know, I share his method of interpreting the text, but you know, I didn't agree with him in every case, even when I was clerking, I mean, then he could tell me what to do. And even if I disagreed, I had to go his way but the fact that we share the same approach does not mean that we would always reach the same result
1: and you make up your own mind don't you
0: i do make up my own mind and
1: you have your own views i think it's fair to say is that uh, is that accurate indeed i do and you're a very accomplished jurist in your own right is that fair to say
0: well it feels a little immodest to opine on that
1: well i'll say it is you're very accomplished so i think this this one-way attribution that everything that you must just be a whatever justice scalia did you would automatically do i have to say frankly i think is a little bit demeaning let me uh, ask you about some other attacks that you've endured today now i noticed yesterday we were assured that you would not be attacked on the basis of your faith i noticed that didn't last 24 hours but i'm not surprised because for three and a half years we have heard consistent attacks from the Democrat side on on nominees on the basis of their faith, including, of course, you, Judge Barrett. And we talked about this some yesterday. Today, the second Democrat senator to speak questioned, criticized you for speaking to a Christian legal group that has a program, a summer program for Christian law students, where you gave, I think, a a lecture once or twice um, on constitutional and statutory interpretation. So let me just ask you about that. You've talked about your faith. This has been well-established. You accepted an invitation to speak to a group of Christian law students on the topic of of your specialty. Uh, Tell us why you accepted the invitation.
0: I had several other colleagues who had participated in the Blackstone program um, lecturing, and I heard great things about it from them. We had a contingent of students from Notre Dame regularly attend this program. And they were among our most engaged and smartest students. And I went and did it. The first time I did it, I really enjoyed it. The students were very, very engaged. So I did it, I don't know, I might have done it four or five times. Each summer, I would go and just give a lecture on originalism that was one hour of the, you know, Blackstone is a summer long program. So I went and gave my one hour lecture at the beginning of it. and. I really thought it was it was a fun to talk about the constitution to an engaged group of students is fun for someone who's a law professor
1: are you aware of anything in the constitution or our laws that say that it is a a disqualification for office for a believer of religious faith to to go and lecture to law students of a similar faith in her area of expertise
0: um i certainly let me see i want to be careful that i'm not uh, veering into answering hypothetical questions but I I certainly didn't think there was anything wrong with my going to speak to a group of Christian law students about my expertise.
1: Uh, Let me ask you this, Uh, Senator Leahy also raised a a pledge, a statement that you signed uh, regarding abortion. You told us, uh, you told the committee in response to his question, you and your husband both signed it. I'm looking at the advertisement in question right here, the portion that you signed. You said that you signed it on your way out of church, if I remember correctly.
0: I did. Um, that was almost 15 years ago at the back of church. There was a table set up for people on their way out of mass to sign a statement, um, you know, validating their commitment to the position of the Catholic church on life issues. Um, the ad that was next to it. I don't recall seeing the ad at the time and in context, looking at it, it looks to me like that was an ad by the St. Joseph County right to life group. Um, the statement that I signed, you know, it, it was, you know, affirming the um, protection of life from conception to natural death.
1: Oh. And you just, you, you, you just made reference to the fact, again, that it was, it was in church. Can you just, why would it have been in, in the, the back of church? I mean, why would, would the signatures, why would this have been available to sign or not, as you so chose, in, in the back of church?
0: Well, because that is the position of the Catholic Church, you know, on on abortion. Though I, I feel like I should emphasize here, as I emphasize to others asking me the question, that I do see as distinct my personal moral religious views and my task of applying the law as a judge
1: is it safe to say following that distinction you just made though that the the, the signature that you lent your husband also reflects your understanding of your church's teaching and and your own personal views i mean that's what this says that you sign
0: so what i would like to say about that is i signed that almost 15 years ago in my personal capacity when i was still a private citizen and now i'm a public official and so while i was free to express my private views at that time i don't feel like it is appropriate for me anymore because of the canons of conduct to express an affirmative view at this point in time but what that statement plainly says is that when i signed that statement that is what i was doing at that point as a private citizen
1: and i'm not aware of of any law or provision of the Constitution that says that uh, if you are a member of the Catholic Church and adhere to the teachings of the Catholic Church or you have religious convictions in line with those of your church teaching that you're therefore barred from office. Are you aware of any constitutional provision to that effect?
0: I would think that the Religious Test Clause would make it unconstitutional.
1: Well, let me place. just ask you about the Test Clause since you bring it up. Article 6 says no religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the united states can you just give us your sense as a constitutional expert scholar and judge now of, of the significance of of article six for our constitutional scheme
0: so the religious test Clause prohibits this body and prohibits the the government generally from disqualifying people from office because of their religious beliefs
1: And it it guarantees, does it not, uh, the freedom of uh, religion. I mean, it is a uh, article one, I'm sorry, uh, uh, amendment one, the first amendment will go on to talk explicitly. And I want to ask you about that in a second about religious liberty. But article six is significant in that it sets out that one cannot be no American citizen can be kept out of office based on his or her belief. You don't have to go and get someone's approval, certainly not somebody in government, their approval over what you believe. Uh, does it meet this test or not? Uh, do they like it or not? You don't have to get any sign-off. In fact, any kind of sign-offs are explicitly ruled out by the Constitution. Is that a fair characterization?
0: The religious test clause makes plain that denomination or belief can't be a reason to disqualify someone.
1: And that is why I, c- I continue to say it is, it is vital that we underline in the Constitution that this this test clause, and that we insist that it be applied in the context of your confirmation judge and every nominee for every high office who comes before this committee. There are no religious tests for office and the attempt to smuggle them in, even in the midst of this committee's hearings to date, uh, it has it must be resisted on the basis of the Constitution itself. Let me ask you about the First Amendment, about the free exercise of religion. Uh, That's, of course, how the First Amendment begins. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Uh, Tell me what you think this says about the the place of religious observance in American life and its significance. Why is it it protected like this in, in the First Amendment? What do you draw from that?
0: I mean, I think its presence in the in the Bill of Rights, you know, like all of our rights, shows that it was one that the people, for generations beginning in 1791, considered central to being a free people.
1: And there's no indication from the Constitution that religious believers are second-class citizens in any way, is there?
0: Um... Well, the free exercise certainly suggests to the contrary.
1: That and in fact, uh, the free exercise clause and the First Amendment suggests that that the exercise of religion, worship, religious belief, gets special protection. I mean, it's singled out here for, for protection, along with immediately after speech, press, right of the people peacefully to assemble. Religion is given a special place, which the United States Supreme Court has recognized. Let me just ask you about attempts to disfavor religious believers on the basis of faith? Is it your understanding? Can a a government, at at any level, federal government, state government, municipality, whatever, can they treat religious believers differently? Can they single them out for disfavor versus a non-religious group? Is that permissible in our constitutional order?
0: Well, Senator Halley, that's a complicated question because, you know, there's a lot of doctrine surrounding that and there aren't bright line rules. And so that question would come up in a case with facts and, you know, it would require the whole judicial decision making process. So it's not. A hypothetical that I can answer.
1: Let me ask you about the, the, the court's decision, unanimous decision in the Hosanna-Tabor case, which touches some of these questions in which the court there is a question about churches' ability, uh, any house of worship to hire and fire their ministers or those who perform religious functions, religious services. And in that unanimous decision, the court says that, that houses of worship are, are different, that they are unique, that they are, that they are given special protection under the First Amendment, and uh, that therefore they must be accorded special status they, they have to have the ability for instance to hire and, and fire ministers uh, those who are going to perform religious functions the state the government cannot interfere with that do you do you think do you agree uh with the the teaching of that case i mean do you do you think that that uh, that, that case remains good law and is a significant decision
0: well, Senator Holly, I think the way to that answer that question is again, as I've said, I can't grade precedent, but I can talk about a precedent from my court. Um, so I was on a panel that decided a case called Gruscott, which applied Hosanna Tabor to the situation of a Jewish school which had fired a teacher, and the teacher sued, and the question was whether following Hosanna Tabor that school was entitled to treat her as a minister under the ministerial exemption recognized in Hosanna Tabor. And my court, um, the panel that I was on, said that she was a minister and we, you know, took the factors in Hosanna Tabor and said nothing was a bright line test. You look at the cluster because Hosanna Tabor was designed to give religious institutions um, the freedom to Hire and fire their ministers, you know, in this case, one of the Jewish faith, um, as consistent with their practice of their faith. And that view of ours in Gruscott was embraced by the Supreme Court last term in Our Lady of Guadalupe.
1: I think it's it's vital in this in this time in this season, Judge, where we're seeing many challenges to religious independence, many challenges to the ability of churches to conduct worship on equal terms with secular organizations, that the Supreme Court's unanimous decisions in this area, Hosanna, Tabor, and others, uh, the Trinity Lutheran case, which was not unanimous, but is a recent, very important case as well. uh, I, I will just say for myself that I think that the lines that the Supreme Court has drawn regarding the First Amendment, regarding the status of houses of worship, uh, regarding the rights of religious believers that now more than ever it is vital that those be respected and that the constitution be fully enforced and that the lo- the line of cases that is now multi-years old that the supreme court has set out be followed and um i i, I certainly hope that uh, that you will uh, respect and apply that precedent going forward i don't have any reason to think that you won't let me um shift gears and ask about another attack uh, that uh, uh has been made on you today having to do with the cantor case the candor case we've heard about um senator durbin asked you about it at some length the senator klobuchar asked you about it as well uh, the candor case first of all is is a case about the second amendment the right to keep and bear arms is that right that is right and it's about whether or not someone who had been charged with and convicted of or pled guilty to a felony uh could keep and bear arms under certain circumstances is that a fair summary yeah. now I've heard repeatedly from my Democrat colleagues that you write in your dissent, you dissented in this case, you write in your dissent that the right to keep and bear arms is an individual right, but the right to vote is not an individual right. But maybe I'm reading a different opinion. That's not what you say in the opinion that I see. Page 50 of your opinion, or of of the joint opinion, your dissent you refer to civic rights, voting rights as civic rights, and you say civic rights, you define them. Civic rights are individual rights. A moment later, you say, for example, the right to vote is held by individuals. So let's just set the record straight here. In this case, you say that the right to vote is an individual right, is that correct?
0: That is correct.
1: And the distinction between a civic right and the Second Amendment has to do with the purposes of that right. First of all, that's not a distinction you invented. Is that correct?
0: That is correct.
1: You were replying to both a chain of cases and also scholarship on this issue. Is that correct?
0: That is correct. And also the arguments the litigants made in the Cantor case itself.
1: And, And this designation of a civic right talks about what the right to vote, what its civic purposes are. In other words, it gives us a stake in our democracy. Is that fair to say? Yes. So you never at any point say that the right to vote is somehow secondary or less than less fundamental than any other right is that fair to say
0: yes that is fair to say i never said that. in
1: fact your whole point in this case which is a fundamental rights case doesn't have anything to do with voting rights this is not a voting rights case is it the cantor it is case not. it has nothing to do with voting rights your whole point in this case a fundamental rights case is that you think that your colleagues on the seventh circuit actually constricted fundamental rights too narrowly that is the supreme court of the united states has said in heller that the right to keep and bear arms is a fundamental right that's the heller decision you think in this case that, that your colleagues actually were constraining that fundamental right a little too narrowly and we're shutting some people out of it is that fair to say
0: we did disagree about the scope of the right
1: so just to make the record perfectly clear here the supreme court has said the united states supreme court has said over and over that, that voting the right to vote is a fundamental right and and i think you've you have affirmed that and recognized today you've said that that is supreme court Precedent. Am I right about that? Yes. Then the Supreme Court has said repeatedly that they adhere to the one-person, one-vote standard, the sort of baseline, the touchstone, the keystone to, to that entire doctrine. Do I have that correct?
0: Indeed, that is correct.
1: And nothing, in your opinion, challenges that or changes that or calls into question, critiques, nothing, right?
0: Not one iota.
1: Okay. I'm glad that we're clear on that. Now, Senator Durbin said, in in as part of his line of questioning on this, he suggested that um i don't know perhaps that this your your opinion in this case somehow which has nothing to do with voting rights makes you friendly to what he characterized as attempts to deny people the right to vote on racial grounds he went on to say that um we all come to everybody every judge all of us who come to the law every judge who comes to the bench comes to The bench into cases with their own individual experience and viewpoints so let's just talk about that for just a second if we could when it comes to the to the fraught but vital issue of race and your own experience with that you and your husband are the parents of a multiracial family we are can you give us some sense just in your personal experience what that has been like for you what what that means to you what your what experience you bring to the bench Uh, because of your experience as a parent in this unique context?
0: Well, I think I could say how it has shaped me as a person. Um, It has certainly, you know, whenever you have a life experience, it makes you acutely aware in your interactions with other people, you know, um, it gives you empathy for them. I mean, the same is true of our having a son with a disability. Um, But I want to make very clear, Senator Hawley, that while my life experiences I think, you know, I hope have given me wisdom and compassion, they don't dictate how I decide cases. Um, Because, you know, as we discussed before and have discussed a couple of times, sometimes you have to decide cases in ways where you don't like the result. So while I hope that my family has made me a better person and my children definitely have given me new perspectives on life. I still, in in applying the law and deciding cases, you know, don't let those experiences dictate the outcome.
1: You'll follow the law wherever the law leads. Yes. Which I think is a good way to bring us back full circle to where we started about your own independence. You've cultivated, I think it's fair to say, over the course of your very distinguished career, you've cultivated a reputation for original thinking, for independence, uh, for... uh, uh, I would say um, for courage and for toughness and um, you've never, I I see no evidence in your record that you've ever compromised, kowtowed or bent your position to the whims of other people, especially people in power based on what they wanted you to do or expected you to do or told you to do. Is that fair to say? I mean, have have I missed something in your record?
0: No, I think that is fair to say.
1: I admire the way in which you've answered these questions, Judge, and uh, your forthrightness on these issues. And I look forward to talking with you more tomorrow. And with that, uh, Mr. Chairman, I yield back my time. Thank you, Senator.